Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm going to ask you a very quick question right now, and it's going to be tough for you to think about, I'm sure, because we don't think about this stuff all that often. But what were you doing and thinking 30 years ago? I mean, it was 1992. We can give you the year. You can do the math. But do you remember what was important to you then or what was really relevant in your life? What kind of things really mattered? Well, I bring this up because a study has been done, a comparison has been done of some polling that was done in 1992 on big issues to Canadians and now, and comparing what 30 years has done to this country. It's been done by Polaris Strategic Insights. Craig Warden is the President and Chief Innovation Officer. Joins us now. Craig, thank you for this. Great to be here. This is uh, this is a lot of. I mean, I know it's supposed to be important, and it is important, but it's also a lot of fun to uh, to look at these things and compare how far or not we've come. And I'll tell you, when I look at some of the things that are important now and were important then, I expect that there would be massive differences. I mean, thirty years is a long time. There's a lot of things that are still pretty similar that are still important that were important back then, and like high on our list of important things. Yeah, that's true. I, and especially, you know, we have to think back to 1992, and it was a time when we had a, a massive recession. Um, and, you know, that's less the case now. Um, so back then, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for trying to find ways to help business, uh, to create jobs, um, and, and fix some things. Uh, across the board, including in environmental protection. And nowadays, um, you know, we see that, you know, the economy isn't as high on the priority list for Canadians now. Um, in many ways, um, what we're seeing is quite a turn towards healthcare now. So that that is one of the differences we're seeing. One of the perennial issues that, uh, that we see in both the 1992 polling and in the 2022 polling, uh, is uh, a desire to increase environmental protection. And, you know, nowadays we'd say uh, fight climate change, but um, environmental protection comes out uh, quite high uh, in both sets of polls. Which was surprising a little bit to me. And again, maybe I'm just not remembering 1992 all that well, but it seems as though environmental stuff is more of a new fight that has been taken on, or at least that has grabbed traction. I don't remember it being such a big deal 30 years ago, but I guess it was. Yeah, it was. It was back then as well. Um, you know, and it had we had some different words to describe it. We didn't use the word climate change back then, but um, there was concern about the environment. Um, and then the years leading up to 1992, there was just a lot of talk about acid rain, right? That's just a term. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, because they solved it. So, um, you know, environment was was there. It was uh, an issue that uh, people were looking to their governments to take action on. And, you know, I'd say governments talked the talk, but didn't walk the walk on it until more recent times. I forgot all about acid rain. Thank you for bringing that one up. Now, see, now I remember what we were all concerned about with the environment yeah. back then. Uh, there is, as you point out, there is a high, high... Um, interest right now or priority on healthcare. You mentioned that today. Uh, some of the other things that really high up there, uh, in environment, as you mentioned, but also Canada pension plan. This looks like, you know, we, we hear all the time that we have an aging population. You look at the things that are important to people. This is, this is putting on paper and into numbers, sort of personifying the fact that we have an aging population. 
Exactly. And that, that is what is driving the numbers in, in so much of our polling these days is the fact that our aging population, um, they, they account for a large proportion of our population. So they are driving a lot of these numbers. So we see a 71 point increase in those who say they want to see more spending on healthcare. We see a 49 point increase in those who want to see an increase in spending on the Canada pension plan uh, because these the boomers uh, and so on are looking to retirement and they're concerned. Uh, it's just planning and saving for retirement. We see it again and again in our studies. It's not something that people really think about until they get into their 40s and 50s even. Absolutely. And, and you know, something else, and I, I'm just, I'm flying through some of these because there's so much information here, but just some of the highlights that really struck me, uh, there is a lot of, there's a big drop in trust in institutions, except, and this is the one that puzzled me. I just don't understand this because everything we hear is that, oh, we hate government. Government's idiotic. We, you know, government doesn't do anything right. All of our trust in institutions pretty much is down, except we have more trust somehow in provincial and federal government. Explain that. Yeah, I think context is everything for that. And uh, and it really does speak to how politics drives trust in government and how when people think about government, they think about the people who are leading those governments. So back in 1992, uh, Mulroney was the prime minister, Brian Mulroney, and he was you know amongst our least popular prime ministers of all time. And he was ending the, he was reaching the end of his, his time in office when uh, negativity was quite high towards him. And also at that time, it was a time, yes, there was a recession, which also will bring down opinions of governments, but also we had just gone through and weren't really quite complete with the constitutional crises that were created by the referendums that we had and all the attempts to renegotiate the, the Meech Lake Accord and the Charlottetown Accord. So during that time, government uh, really lost a lot of its trust and credibility with uh, the pop population at large. Were there any of these institutions, and, and again, organizations can be referred to, I mean, scientists do very well, police do well, military does well, then you get down grocery chains, groups representing Indigenous people, teachers, federations, your phone provider, uh, that's an interesting one, especially now. Um, anything on there that surprised you that did better than expected? Because when I hear, like, yeah, for example, when I hear phone provider, I only ever hear people talking about their phone provider if they're angry about it. And yet it does pretty well. Yeah, I think uh, one of the ones that surprised us is just that, you know, one of the other things you hear people say these days is nobody trusts the media, nobody trusts the news media. Well, you know, and that this represents a, a decline over the years, it's never been lower. Well, the fact is, we have almost the same level of trust in news media now as we did back in 1992. So 47% said that they trust news media in 1992 and 44% say the same now. So it just goes to show that, you know, we do live in an age of, of outrage and, and criticism, um, but a lot of these things are quick takes. And when you put it into context and take a step back to see where people are at 30 years ago, you can see that, um, you know, some things haven't changed. And so trust levels are roughly the same. Not to jump around too much, but your company did another poll that was out, I think, today or yesterday about the Rage Index. You guys do that one. And if I mm -hmm. read through that one right, just to go to the media thing, 
Um, among the people who rage seemingly the most are those who are not on Twitter or other social media. It, it makes me wonder when you're doing a poll like this and a certain age group that is not every day on Twitter getting the getting into the swamp, if that affects how they trust or don't trust the regular media. Yeah, we have seen that, that uh, those who are not highly active in social media tend not to be as as upset or frustrated or angry um you know and even in in our rage index poll for december i mean we see that the younger age bracket the sort of folks who are 18 to 34 years old are amongst those who are the most angry and annoyed uh, about things now they're particularly driven by economic circumstances uh, that their personal finances and dissatisfaction with that um and and that can be a driver but uh, I'm sure that, you know, being active on social media can't help things. Mm. Uh, one more. I wish we had more time, but one more that really jumped out at me here. Um, and I, I'm surprised you asked this question. I don't know why it was pulled out specifically, but I'm glad you did. The The one area where it seems people have really turned negative, and there's a number, but where they've really turned negative, people apparently now hate the airlines. <laughs> That's what I take from this. People hate the airlines. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, we kind of hated them back in 1992. And you'd, you'd assume that there was uh, no further, you know, bottom to reach for them. But back in 1992, we had about four and 10 who were uh, upset or happy with them. And now it's only about two and 10 who are happy with them. So um, the airlines, I think they've come out of COVID um, and with some of the issues surrounding refunds and rebates and so on. Um, with a bit of a black mark on them. And uh, I think that's what's driving the the further reduction in satisfaction with our airlines here in Canada. Before I let you go, this whole idea, is this something that had always been planned? Did you do this at 25 years or did somebody say, you know, we should go back and look and see how this compares? How did this even come to be? Uh, you know, we just were sitting around one day, we we're helping out a, a particular client and we were providing them with context uh, for their results that, that had us dig through the archives and go back uh, about 35 years in that case. And that prompted us to say, you know what, maybe we should re-ask some questions from about 30 years ago, a nice round number, and uh, and see how much things have changed or not. And uh, just to provide that kind of perspective. Uh, so it was a great idea. It's yeah. a great idea. People can look more of this up, uh, polara.com, P-O-L-L-A-R-A, polara.com. They can find the uh, the whole report there. Uh, Craig Warden, uh, the President and Chief Innovation Officer of Polara. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, a couple of days from now, a few days from now, it's going to be Christmas. I, I, hope, I hope you've caught on to that so far. And for some of you, that means it is going to be presents and family gatherings. And that's kind of the most important part for others. The most important part is what the day is actually where it started, the the background of it, the birth of Christ, the, the religious part of what Christmas is. However, there are studies, including one that's just out here in this country, showing that that is important and relevant to fewer and fewer people. There are the, the numbers of Canadians and Americans who say that religion is very important to their life is dropping as it has been for a while now. I want to bring in David Haskell. He's a professor of religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. He joins us now. David, thank you for this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, would you be in any way surprised by these numbers or knowing how these numbers have been going for the last years, this is what you would have expected? Yeah, I think that when we see that there's a decline in interest in organized religion, we, we aren't surprised because the trends in the West are certainly going that way. Now, the trends overall uh, in the world are not going that way. We have a resurgence of religious interests in places like China, for example, and in Africa, the uh, the religion <clears throat> that is most growing is Christianity as well. So so we see these pockets worldwide where we've got growth. But in the West, we, we aren't surprised to see decline because it's been happening, you know, since the 1960s. What, what's your theory on that? Why, why would some places in the world be going up while we are going down? Why do you think? Well, I think that uh, other people have really given some good theoretical uh toying to this. And um, I'm trying to think, who, who do I like the best? Uh, Pippa Norris has a, a theory that says, as you become more, as, as your society takes care of you more, uh, as, you, as your social welfare system becomes uh, more advanced, there's less need for religion, because often religion is um, a comfort. And, and even in a community, it can provide a community that will then be a pseudo welfare state. But in those places where the government has taken that over, she argues that you're going to see a decline in, in religion. Now, what, I, what I'd counter to that though, Scott, is that we are seeing a, a different kind of need that isn't being met. And it's a psychological need. And we know that religion does that very well. And, and what I mean specifically is that we have the highest rates of depression in the history of North America, especially among young people. And uh, psychologists will tell you that one of the key factors that leads to depression is a sense of purposelessness. And religion does that really well. So what, what was also in this study that you've mentioned was that we see an uptick in religion among youth. And in, in Canada in particular, for example, the highest level of, uh, when they were asked, is religion important to you? And the highest levels, I think it was 27%, was seen among 18 to 34 year olds, which is a little bit of an anomaly. And, and then it went down 25% for those 34 to 50, and then it was, I think, 22% for those over 50. So it's the young who are actually embracing religion more. And there are a number of factors we could talk about that might be lead, leading to that. But that was something interesting to me. And, and in that, I would see that as you search for meaning, uh, you're going to look to religion, and young people are the ones who are the most meaningless. I, I was wondering if that, if COVID, when we got starting on this, and you sort of alluded to it, I think, I was wondering if COVID was going to drive people away from religion because they didn't have the opportunity to go to a service, or they didn't have the opportunity to be at a youth group, or at the mosque, or at the synagogue, or wherever, or if that loneliness and that time away was going to bring them to religion. I don't know if we have an answer, but maybe what you just said partially answers it. And maybe, and it cuts both ways. I was teasing that out of my mind today because we know that in many cases, uh, COVID has seen, or the, the pandemic in general, has been attributed to a drop in religious attendance. Well, certainly when, when the churches were saying they were non-essential, people picked up that message and then just carried it over once the pandemic was over. They were, they were, they were convinced, okay, you're non-essential. 
But what we also saw was those churches that stayed open despite the uh, mandates telling them to close, they've actually grown significantly. Uh, many of them doubled in size. Now, some of that would have been just uh, people who, who traditionally went to another church are now coming to them. So we, we don't know. We can't just say that it was a, a conversion experience of some sort. But another thing that COVID shows, I think, is, uh, and this, this goes back to the young people who are particularly interesting to me. I'm wondering if religion became more expensive and when something is more expensive, you actually have a greater uptick. What do you Let mean me by just, more expensive? Yeah, it, it became more expensive because if you were a religious person, and let's say you applied for a religious exemption to, to the vaccine, uh, you, you were categorically denied. Um, it was really just uh, a mass, uh, what do they call it? Um, a, a masturbatory exercise where they pretend that they were going to give you a religious exemption. It's, it's very well documented that you could apply and then they just reject you out of hand. They wouldn't look at your, what you'd actually written. They just said, no, I'm sorry, your beliefs aren't sincere. So that's where the rubber hit the road. I mean, if you really were going to be a person of religious conviction, now it cost you something. And to a certain extent, that became very countercultural. And youth in particular, gravitate to things that are countercultural, hmm. and this this sounds odd but but right now to really devote religion and, and in particular christianity uh is maybe as countercultural as you can get and that might be driving the youth thing and, and we saw this in particular when people tried to get a religious exemption maybe you were soft on your religious belief and you thought ah, oh, i'm going to try and get this religious exemption and then when you didn't get it you just saw whoa um I, i'm actually my religion is costing me something. So in that way, you might have been pushed toward greater belief. There's a psychological uh, theory, and it's called reactance. And it really is this idea that, that when you are told you can't have something, you want it more. And it's really well documented. And we might have, we might have seen it there with the whole COVID thing and religious exemptions and greater affinity for belief. Well, and to your point, I think uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm misreading the tea leaves a little bit here, but it also seems when you talk about costing, it seems like while there may be an uptick in young people who are interested in religion, there also seems to be a lot more antagonism towards religion. So again, if you're going to be someone who follows it, you're going to be expecting it's when you again, when you talk about costing, you're going to face some slings and arrows. Right, right. And so that's a really great observation because it really shows that religion, like other products, and I'm not trying to be glib or, or make fun of religion. I, I mean, I'm a religious practitioner myself. So uh, but I'm, I've got my sociologist hat on here, so I want to just be neutral. So let's look at it in terms of cost benefits or um, supply demand is better. Supply demand. Right now, the, the demand for religion is being artificially suppressed by greater stigmati stigmatization. And I'll give, you, I'll give you some examples. I mean, it really is in the Christian faith, for example, it is... Uh, it's held up to be an oppressive force. I mean, at my own university, we have we have courses that tell students that Christianity is a force for evil, that um, it's a colonizing power. And these, 
these particular observations are always rooted in a kernel of truth, but then they completely downplay any of the good and they exaggerate all of the evil. But this is not just at universities. I mean, it's in our education system overall. It's in our media. So as you get this stigmatization, you're going to see less of a demand for something. But those who are, are still wanting that thing, well, that makes them even stronger. So it's, it's fairly interesting. And we have political examples, too. I, I don't want people to think I'm just pulling these things out of the air. We, we can go back to the Trinity Western decision. It was a court case. This uh, Trinity Western wanted to have a law school. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. They were told, you can't have a law school because your position on traditional marriage uh, is a harm to society, essentially. And so we see an erosion there. Uh, we saw the sum, summer jobs funding where uh, the Trudeau government said that unless people were, were and these were um, nonprofits and charitable organizations were willing to say that they would support uh, a pro-abortion position, they couldn't get government funding. Well, that, that, that happened. So we see this gradual erosion of religious rights and freedoms. And so we can say that as, this freedom is eroded, stigmatization increases. It's a fascinating discussion. Uh, again, the the poll is by Research uh, Co. Research Co. Um, it is uh, 38% of American respondents say religion is very important to them. 25% of Canadians say the same. Um, David Haskell from Wilfrid Laurier University. So much, uh, thank you so much for the time and Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed the conversation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Before we get to the gambling thing that I want to talk about, let me bring in Steve Foxcroft, who uh, sports official, sports commentator, Santa Claus parade host. I mean, uh, a little bit of this, a little of that. The man does everything. How are you today? <laughs> you just got me laughing. The Santa Claus parade host. That's a that's a big one. Top of the resume, that's for sure. Uh, I would say, well, this time of year, absolutely it is. And by the way, also, for those who don't, I think most people know, but a man who works the chains, the, the yardsticks, the 10-yard markers at the Buffalo Bills game. Were you were you on the weekend? Were you there on the weekend? Were you working? Yes, I was there Saturday night. All right, so yep. at the beginning of the game, huge talk that this was going to be another blizzard bowl, and for three quarters of the game, clear skies and nothing, fourth quarter the snow came. Are you standing there going, where's the snow? I want the snow. Or when the snow comes, you going, oh, crap, not the snow. Well, it was a little bit of both, to be honest with you. As a fan, you wanted the snow because I thought that it was too nice of an evening, to be honest with you. It wasn't cold enough to for the Bills to have the advantage. Like, I've been there before when Ryan Tannehill was the quarterback for the Dolphins, and I looked into his eyes, and I could tell he did not want to be in Buffalo. Like, they were just shell-shocked, frozen, and so on. But on this night, it was actually a pleasant night for too long of it, three quarters worth. Yeah, now, it did look pretty. It, I mean, look, it looked cold. No question, it looked cold. But it didn't look, it didn't look cold like Green Bay, yeah, frozen it, tundra. You hurt just to be outside, kind of cold. It wasn't Green Bay, Buffalo cold like it could be. It was actually like a nice evening. So then the fourth quarter, things changed though. Like, things did change. It got nasty, and it got nasty in a hurry. And I was like, okay, I've had enough now. This is good. (laughs) And then the game went a little long. Like, there was a few things that happened that made the game go a little longer than normal, too. Well, the snowballs. Snowballs, the delay, uh, Vinovich checking with the league office to see what he could do, maybe penalize the Buffalo team, something like that. But 
the game. Like, I didn't get out of there. It was going on midnight. Okay, so here's my thing. Here's my thing with the snowballs is I don't want someone to lose an eye with a chunk of ice or something like that. But if you can go down to Miami and the Dolphins are allowed to not provide shade on one side of the field so their guys get shade and the other team has to stand in the blazing sun, I think you can make a, a, a legitimate argument that that is a safety concern. Guys were getting... It put, be put into medical problems because they overheat because that is, it was mm. unbelievable. How is a snowball any more dangerous than that? I'm, I don't want ice being thrown around, but I'm like, you know what? No, throw the snowballs. Let's have all the snowballs. Let's just, let's roll up giant snowballs and heave them onto the field. I'm all for that. Well, when you put it that way, it is equal responsibility, like equal advantage, disadvantage, so to speak. I did sort of notice that there wasn't going to be a penalty. So if they were going to assess a penalty, I thought strategically they could have done it like on a kickoff or something where really it's going to go for a touchback anyways. So it wouldn't have mattered like 15 more yards. They're going to kick it through the end zone anyways. So it wouldn't have mattered. You could have done it then and try to send the message. But the comeback was you never knew who was throwing this. Like would right. that entice the Miami fans there to do to throw snowballs to get the penalty against Buffalo. So that wasn't going to happen. And I also knew it wasn't going to happen when talking to the refs, when we came out for the second half, uh, I forget how I got the conversation to this point, but it would be like, this is where I was kind of tugged at it a little bit too, because I love the snowballs going up like the popcorn popping, but I didn't like them being thrown on the field because I just thought that was a bad look. Well, mafia. I, I know that in Canada, I'm looking back years now, 25 years, I can remember when Rocket Ishmael was running in for a touchdown in the Great Cup and beer cans, full beer cans yeah. were being thrown. So what's well, a snowball? And it's, it's, but it's just not a good look. No, not a I, look that I want for Bill's Mafia. So I was going that way with the refing crew for that, you know, we had a couple seconds before kickoff and, and they said, well, we will need to warn the crowd again if we're going to penalize them we're going to give a second warning to the crowd like a like a second half warning so as soon as i heard that from the crew i knew they weren't going to penalize the crowd and then it gets back to the first point about who are you actually penalizing who's actually committing the snowball offense let us uh jump to a sad story from today it starts as a sad story anyway franco harris uh, the author of the immaculate reception uh, passed away just days before the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception was going to be celebrated in Pittsburgh. For those who don't know, and I can't imagine there's more than a handful, the Immaculate Reception was a moment, it was in the Pittsburgh Steelers game 50 years ago, uh, just a bizarre play at the end of a game in a playoff game where uh, Terry Bradshaw throws a pass, goes way offline, hits a player, ricochets right into Franco Harris's hands, who runs it in for the winning touchdown. It was a bit of everything. It's one of the most celebrated plays in NFL history. Steve, I'm asking you this because because of the TV cameras of the day, we could never, you can never see for certain that Franco Harris makes that catch legally, that it doesn't hit the turf. You never can, we'll never know for sure whether that's the case. And I go to today now because with all the cameras and all the rules and the replay and everything else, there is a chance that if that play were to happen today, causing all the same excitement, all those same things, that that play gets wiped out because a 
4K camera catches just the nose of the ball making contact with the ground. And I'm wondering what we lose sometimes when we start getting into the replay and these things. Like, I, I look at that and I go, if that play gets wiped out, it's one of the greatest plays in NFL history gone. And it, does it really matter to us down the road whether that ball nosed the ground or not? I, I, I just, I, I understand why we have replay, but sometimes I look and say it does more harm than good. The one that, where I like replay is the over-egregious miss. Sure. Where, like the NFC Championship game a few years ago where the pass interference call, was it New Orleans who got jobbed out of that one? Yep. Um, like that was just blatant and egregious, and it wasn't splitting hairs. Like the one the other night in the Bills game, McKenzie on the sideline, that McDermott challenged, where his knees were clearly down, but they said he didn't complete the catch or, you know, the ball moved a bit because his hand was under the ball. That's kind of the one where you're talking about, and this the immaculate reception is kind of like that, where you're splitting hairs. Even in 4K, you don't know what happened. So I agree with you that what a play. Like, that was one of the things that made me, as a young child, young boy, that, along with Dwight Clark, the catch, maybe even Doug Flutie in college with the Hail Mary, there's some of those plays that are just etched in stone in your mind that, that you just remember that made you a fan of the sport. And it's different for all of us because we're all different ages. But how but many, one. but Steve, how many of those, if we go back and we're to look at them, how many of those amazing plays that we remember and that made us fans might have gone away if replay had existed and we could bear like, so that no official on the field, possibly with the naked eye could make the call. They, they make the right call, but all of a sudden there's one little thing that's wrong with it. And now that play doesn't exist anymore. And, and to me, that's, I, the whole replay thing to me has gotten completely out of control. I understand you got to do it now because it's everywhere. But to me, if you're an official, you should have 20 seconds to watch a replay. And for the same reason you just said, and if, if it's an egregious thing where it's like, okay, obviously, I mean, we're in the NHL, they started doing offsides because there was a play, I think it was a Colorado Avalanche player who was literally 30 feet offside. He was so far offside that they didn't even see him because he was so far offside and it led to a goal. Mm-hmm. That's why. So, okay, we can watch this and in 10 seconds we can say, oh, clearly, you know, not good. But if you have to watch one of these things for a minute or two or three and break it down into 17 different angles and frame by frame. What's the point? Let yeah. go with the call that the official made. Otherwise don't have officials. And it would be kind of neat if they put the shot clock, if you will, the ref clock on the screen and, and you set it at 90 seconds, whatever we choose to set it at. Once they go under the hood, so to speak, they have 90 seconds. And I agree with you. It would it would make it where anything overturned would be for something egregious, something that that needs to be overturned. Not for the ones, like, even in the NBA, some of the out-of-bounds plays late in the game, they replay them so much. And I, I shouldn't say this because it's my job, right? But we replay them so much, and you still can't tell whose who's fingernail hit it last. No, but again, I like I, the first thing I thought of today when I heard about Franco. Well, I thought about it a, a week or two ago when they announced that they were having the celebration for him because on the I think it was on the Bills game they had about ten ads 
for this special thing they're doing for the the immaculate reception. And then it turns out that Frank O'Hara, you know, unfortunately passes away right before. But I just keep thinking about that one because we never could see it. There's a mystery involved in that play. It was an amazing play, but there's a mystery and, and we'll never know, but that play stands as one of the greatest plays ever. If we had all the cameras, that play may never have actually technically happened. And I think the funny part about it is Franco for years has said, I will never tell you if it hit the ground or not. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way he knows if it hit the ground or not. Of course not. not. Nobody does. No. Nobody does. Yeah. You that know, the fact... What a team they were, and he was a rookie coming out of Penn State. Yep. But uh, just a big, like he, to me, was the epitome of uh, as close to Jim Brown, like the big, bulky running back, right, that we've got away from in, in years that have gone by since. But he was a running back. All right, let me go to the thing that I wanted to talk about to start this whole thing, and that is this. Uh, you watch a lot of sports on TV. I watch more than I probably should, although, you know, whatever, but... I have reached a point where I don't have an objection if Steve Foxcroft or anyone else wants to lay a bet on a sporting event. You want to gamble on sports? I'm. That's fine. That's your choice. That's your money. I have reached a point, though, Steve, where I am so tired of the onslaught, the ever-present, unending, unrelenting series of ads and interruptions and involvements of gambling and everything else. It, I, it, it it's, it's taken over what I'm watching half the time. And it's gotten to the point, to me anyway, where it's just way too much and way too distracting and doesn't do anything to make the game more pleasurable for me. I'm with you on that. And some of the commercials, too, are corny. Like Wayne Gretzky, the one with him and Connor McDavid, it's the absolute corniest thing. And I think it's actually, like, it takes takes away from the legacy of Wayne Gretzky to me. Like, I'd like to think that I'm beyond that, but it just... It's like it's they're lowering themselves in some of these examples. And you know, growing up, I just the the racetrack was where I went to gamble or something like that. That's where gambling came into play. And then maybe a bingo hall or something like that. But that wasn't sports related. But then then you got into like picking your pools in the NFL, trying to pick all sixteen games a week and so on and so forth. But now it's too much. But I know, and no problem with that. I got no problem with being in a pool or doing a pro line or doing I, uh, going to Vegas. Uh, none of that stuff. I don't have a problem with that stuff. It's when you, the games are interrupted while some person comes on and tells me what the odds are now that so-and-so is going to be the first person to get a shot in the first period or the second mm-hmm. period. Like, it's just... And even in-game odds. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Just too much. That I don't care for, too. Even especially when, like on Hockey Night in Canada, they'll do a good panel discussion and nothing against Cabby. But then they bring in Cabby to tell us, like what you're saying, the odds and this and that. And I think it's just gone. It's too far. It's It's overboard. And I don't like, maybe it affects our young people too much, too. I don't know. Like... Could well, we're going to find some issues. We're going to find that out in a few years, I think, because that I, I was talking to Scott Thompson before uh, before I came on my show about this, and and I mean that's a secondary issue, I suppose, but not really, because when they used to, I mean, the the, the joke always used to be Steve, and you know this, the joke used to be when you would watch hockey or football, it was nothing but a series of car commercials and beer commercials. Yeah. And the thing with the beer commercials was, yeah, you know what, you could say, well, the kids are seeing those, yes, but they can't 
generally, unless they really work some angles, they can't just easily get access to beer until they're an adult. With mm-hmm. the gambling, I think that you, I, I would be hard-pressed to believe that if you just click on the button that says, yes, I'm 18, or use something else, they could probably have access to some kind of gambling account. Right, because you're behind a screen. When If you're trying to use fake ID as a young person, being like 18 years old and 7, 19, there's still you're in front of somebody doing it. Like you're saying, there's a transaction with a physical person happening rather than just, oh, yeah, click on whatever. I'm, I'm 11 years old, but I'll just click on it. To and, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that the companies are being uh, not taking their job seriously or anything like that. I just, you're right. As long as there's an anonymity of just being on a screen. Mm-hmm. S- Even if the parents say, like, say you're, you, your, your son or daughter, they're with you and you, you bet $2 a night on a game. It's what happens is, like the addictive personality of it that could come into play eventually. And then does that translate into as they get older, they need action on a game to watch a game or I something know. like that. I, and, I don't know. And that's and like those are those are issues that are way beyond my capacity to understand. I don't really understand that whole thing. I I I mean gambling has been available before. So if you have an addictive personality, it's not like this new thing is the only way to do it. I just, it's the, it's the, I'll even leave that part out. Although someone else could have a much more in-depth discussion than, than I will. I just look at the, the nonstop. I just, the, the TV is on in the studio right now and it's the pregame for the Raptors and already they're pumping up. What are the odds for this or that or the other? And it's like, I, honestly, I, if, if I'm interested in it, I'll find it. I don't need my entire broadcast to be just dripping with nothing but odds and, and other things like this. To me, it's it's not the game. It's Will it happen like the ads for liquor, like you said, liquor, tobacco, and everything else, where now you can't even go into the variety store and see them behind the shelf, right? They're all covered up. You don't have commercials for them, and it's because they identified maybe a problem. Um, will this happen in 30 years with gambling? Will they go the same way as it's gone with cigarettes. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I at one point I thought, you know, we're going to have this like enormous um, surge of ads, which we have. We're going to have this enormous surge of ads and then the wheat will be separated from the chaff or, you know, people like me will say, okay, enough. And, and some will fade out and the strongest companies will survive. But right now we're clearly not at that point because it's just, it's nonstop and it's everywhere. And there is a lot of money in it. Clearly there's a lot of money in it. Well, I'll agree with you on this one too. I'm done with the commercials on the sporting events that I watch for them because they aren't even good commercials, no matter what the product the commercials are lousy. You mentioned the one with Wayne Gretzky and Connor McDavid, and, and it's kind of funny you do because I, I understand what they were trying to do in the commercial, but don't you get the sense, it, doesn't the commercial send the message that Connor McDavid really doesn't like Wayne Gretzky and Wayne Gretzky is a bit of a doofus? Yeah, exactly. Which, I, which neither one of those things is true. Right. But Wayne Gretzky looks like he's not very bright. And Connor McDavid just looks totally miffed that, mm-hmm. at Wayne Gretzky the whole time. And it's like, who even, who even puts these commercials together? Who, who comes I up with this idea? Totally agree with you, especially in that instance. It's portraying them both like they shouldn't be portrayed. And, and Jamie Foxx. Like, again, I get that it's a TV commercial, but I've seen these things like now four billion times already. 
I mean, Jamie Foxx, the actor, he's an intelligent guy. It's it, it just these these nonstop things of him. Oh, I don't know. I just I, I I'm so done with it. And, and it would be like with anything else. I mean, it doesn't have to be gambling. If all of a sudden every sporting event had commercials for kale and all you saw commercial after commercial after commercial was commercials for kale. It's like, okay, I get it. I get it enough. (laughs) Don't mention kale to me. (laughs) As we enter the holiday season, kale will not be on the table at my house. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I don't think, well, if, if put it this way, if kale is on anyone's house menu, then, um, they could probably got bigger problems than the gambling ads. <laughs> you got it. Steve Foxcroft, listen, you can, uh, when are you back on the sidelines? Um, January, we have a flex game coming up. And um, so we uh, it's New England, the last game of the year. So it's going to be Saturday or Sunday. So we don't know for sure yet around the, I think it's the seventh or eighth. And then next week, three Raptor games at home. Wow, there you go. And maybe New England will uh, will throw the ball to Buffalo and make yeah. it really easy, just like last game. Uh, <laughs> Steve Fox, really appreciate the time. Have a Merry Christmas, Steve. Thanks for you doing too. this. All righty. No, no problem. Talk soon. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.